Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We may be at the beginning of the greatest scandal in American intelligence history and possibly American political history as well. In this video, in this podcast, we'll explain why and we'll tell you why it's so important to understand that because right now, America is being subjected to a disinformation campaign, a gaslighting campaign by Republicans who are desperate to muddy the waters because they know how bad. Our guide in this story is Craig Unger. He's the widely respected author of New York Times bestselling books like House of Trump, House of Putin, and American Compromise. He's also the author of a recent article in the New Republic called, Did the FBI's Charles McGonagall Help Throw the 2016 Election to Trump? And that's going to be our starting point today. So, Craig, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely, it's actually kind of thrilling to have you because we've been approaching this issue from different angles in recent weeks. We had the noted author, Greg Oliar on the show, who made extensive use of your work, cited you widely. We had the financial expert, Ruth May, on the show, who talked about some of the burgeoning financial contacts between Russia and the Republican Party, especially in the 2015 through 2017 period. And now, like I said a moment ago, I'd like to work backwards from the recent news of the arrest of Charles McGonigal. Could you help us start off there? Could you just remind us all, who is Charles McGonigal and what's he accused of doing? Right. Charles McGonigal was head of counterintelligence, his last job was head of counterintelligence for the FBI. And uh, he is accused of doing favor, working for the Russians, essentially being paid by Oleg Deripaska, who, of course, is a sanctioned oligarch, probably the single closest oligarch to Vladimir Putin, and a very important one. And as such, I mean, it should be obvious, but he's a target for the FBI and for them being paid off by him is quite a scandal indeed. So McGonagall, after he left the FBI and left his position, basically went to work for Deripaska, the oligarch who is so close to Putin. Could you also just remind us of how Deripaska is tied to Manafort and Trump? Right. Deripaska is truly, in my mind, he's the single most important dark, or at least he's one through whom you see Russians' evolution into a, a mafia state. And he was the winner of the aluminum wars. He ended up in charge, CEO of Rusal, the Russian aluminum company. Aluminum is a strategic resource, and that's enormously important in terms of the way Vladimir Putin runs a mafia state. So, so you may recall Deripaska at one point was negotiating with Mitch McConnell to open an aluminum mine in, in Kentucky. Well, think on that for a minute, minute. What is aluminum used for? Among other things, it's used for airplanes. Do we want to be dependent on Russia for our airplanes? Does Ukraine want to be dependent on Russia for its airplanes? I think the answer is pretty obviously no. You don't have to be a brilliant at security to figure that out. So he is a key player 
And Deripaska was, a, Putin used him to install a pro-Putin dictator in president, but one th who got there by fraud in the in Ukraine. And he, he did it again. And the money went through, Paul Manafort got as much as 75 million from the Russians for that. And then he started to do it again, of course, putting Trump in the White House in 2016, while Manafort was seriously indebted to Deripaska. So just to kind of read that back and sum it up, what we now know is that Charles McGonigal was the guy at the FBI in charge of trying to, it's counterintelligence, trying to stop the Russians from doing dirty spy stuff to us. And he, at some point, starts working for the number one Russian guy who's doing the dirty stuff to us. And that guy also happens to be tied to the campaign chairman for Donald Trump. Yeah. And he also happens, Deripaska, to be tied to the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, actually arranged to have $2 million given to Mitch McConnell's Senate leadership fund in around this same time frame. So the upshot here is that as Yale historian, Dr. Timothy Snyder put it recently, this looks horrible for Donald Trump. I'm just editorializing for a second, and so is Dr. Snyder. One of Trump's connections to Russia was his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, who had worked for Deripaska. And it turns out that one of the key FBI officials who was investigating Deripaska went on to work for him. So if the people who run Trump's campaign and investigate Trump's campaign are employees of the same Russian oligarch, it's pretty hard to dismiss that as a coincidence. Okay. I think that wraps up <laughs> that little piece of it, unless there's more that we've missed. Well, one more obvious piece is if you look at the New York Times the week before the election in 2016, it had two big stories in which the FBI figured very prominently. And one said, oh, we're reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it turned out that's because of, they got Wiener's uh, laptop. Oh, yeah, Anthony Wiener's laptop. And they were going through the, and in fact, those were duplicated emails. They weren't even new emails and none of them were classified. We found out much later, but by then it was too late. And the other story, of course, was the FBI has no sign of collusion between Trump and the Russians. And I think in both cases, they were 180 degrees off. So, so they played a big role, I think. So how ridiculous is it, the assertion? that there is no link between Trump and Russia's activities in the 2016 campaign. And that, 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 that question is one with its own answer. But what questions arise in your mind about the origin of that New York Times story? A story saying no, no ties between Trump and Russia, when, as you've reported in other books and many have seen, there were clear ties that were obvious with Trump and Russia going back to 1980. What's up with the New York Times? How could they print a story like that? Well, the Times and a lot of publications, I think, succumb to uh, what is often called access journalism. And it means you got a source, you run with what he's giving you. And it sounds like they had sources in the FBI. Was the source McGonagall? That's a big and obvious question right now. I don't know the answer, but it had to be an FBI sources. And you see that happening again and again with the Times. As I mentioned, in Benghazi days, it was someone 
like Trey Gowdy on the Benghazi committee. The Republicans love to get, give handouts like that. You can go back to the Iraq war and one of the most egregious examples of that kind of access journalism was when Judith Miller it took a leak from Dick Cheney's office. When Dick Cheney leaks to you or his assistant leaks to you, he wants you to carry water for you for him. It's not because he loves you. But the Times ran with that, and that provided the trigger for the Iraq war in which a million people died. So actually, this is basically where I think we wanted to go with this, because just to recap what we know so far, we have this recent arrest of the guy who was supposed to be stopping Russia from screwing with us. Turns out he was working for Russia. And I teased at the top the idea that this might be the greatest intelligence scandal and maybe the greatest politics scandal in American history, ultimately. Because the question that I think we're ultimately driving at is, where does this tip of the iceberg, the arrest of McGonagall, lead us in terms of unanswered questions and things we really should be asking right now? And I think, Paul, what you're raising is kind of, as we work our way backwards in time, one of these, one of these waypoints. Because we started with McGonagall getting arrested. We worked our way back to, well, McGonagall's connected to Deripaska and Manafort. And then we bring ourselves back to, all right, it's October 2016, and three things happen. We have the two New York Times stories that Craig mentioned, which appear to be pl like plants and engineered by, by Trump and or Russia or both. And we also have this very suspicious job switch of Charles McGonagall to step into the role that he's occupying, trying to stop the Russians. And so it, it raises the question that you ask in your New Republic article, Craig, which is what else do we not know? I mean, on the surface, what he's indicted for McGonagall is taking money like, and going to work for a sanctioned individual. But it feels like what we don't know is what else was going on in that New York FBI field office and how does it tie into these New York Times stories that were trying to put their thumb on the scale for Donald Trump? And can I just... Oh, that's not a complicated enough question for you? No, I won't, because I want to plus that up. Because remember, when McConnell switches his job in 2016, very shortly, I mean, I think it's day, within days, James Comey, director of FBI, all of a sudden announces, oh, we're reopening the Hillary Clinton investigation. We're going to look at her emails. And then we have the election that ends up with Trump getting elected. So so tell us, what was going on in that FBI office? What have you pieced together? What, do we, what don't we know? What do we still need to know? Well, well, I don't know everything that's going on in it, but a lot of my books, and I did two books on Trump, Russia, and a lot of the material came from FBI files, so I can be reasonably sure they knew they had the same files I did. But if you'll permit me to go back nearly 40 years and then take it from there and just list sort of a litany of compromises, I want to do that. And the second after doing that, I want to discuss this is it's interesting that McGonagall was head of counterintelligence because. For the most part, what we've gotten from the FBI has been criminal investigations and no counterintelligence investigation. And I think it's extraordinarily important that we really get one, and we haven't had that yet. But to start off with the compromises, in 1984, and this was widely reported, by the way, before I got to it, a man named David Bogadan, who, according to FBI files, was tied to the Russian mafia, walked into Trump Tower, then 
the newly opened crown jewel of Donald Trump's, he was young back then, this is over 40, 40 years ago. This was a crown jewel of his empire, the glitziest apartment building in the United States. And Bogdan comes in and puts down $6 million in cash, says, I'll take five condos. Well, he was tied to the Russian mafia. Trump, of course, doesn't say, gee, did you get that money from drug dealing, sex trafficking? He just takes the money. According to the New York State Attorney's General's office, that was basically money laundering, but it's very difficult to prosecute the seller because you have to prove his state of mind that he knew where the money was coming from. And Trump, of course, is savvy enough not to do that or not to make it known, or he generally is. Trump did these kinds of transactions. And when I say these kinds, they have two characteristics. One is it's an all-cash purchase of real estate, and two, it's through a limited liability company or some other mechanism in which you can hide the beneficial owner. And that is a, those are red lights if you're investigating money laundering. You would say, I want to know what's going on there. Well, Trump did that not one or two or five or six times. He did that at least 1,300 times. Wow. I might argue that's a pattern, but you, whatever. Trump was starting to do it. And when I found, when I started just doing a dive from public records, I found at least 13 people tied to the Russian mafia who lived or owned condos in that building. I don't know how many Russian mobsters live in your building neighborhood or block, but that seems like a high percentage, especially if you're going to be president of the United States. So that's one thing. And two is that it was money laundering. Now, again, it may be impossible to prosecute. I can see that. But is it, is it okay for the president of the United States to have laundered money, the Russian mafia? The Russian mafia, by the way, is a state actor. It's not like the United States where the FBI and the Italian mafia were always shooting it out. The Russian mafia operates at the service of the KGB and its successors. So it, it serves their end. So, and to think that this is one of their homes in the crown jewel of the president's empire, to me was sort of mind blowing. And yet no one has disputed any of my reporting on this. And by the way, the book's been out for like what, over for five years now. And yet it, to me, it should be have been part of that, the Mueller report, it should have been part of real counterintelligence investigations. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So this, I think connects. And I, again, I'm, 
I have a great deal of sympathy for our radio listeners. I even have sympathy for reporters because you're clearly a very talented and thorough investigator and reporter in your own right. And you have done unbelievable work to piece all of this together and you have it in a Rolodex in your mind. I have sympathy for listeners who are trying to keep all of this evidence straight and the, the narrative thread that we're talking about straight and for reporters. I say that because I also have a great deal of what's the opposite of sympathy, derision for the New York Times article that came out in this same critical time period, giving Trump a clean bill of health, saying that there are no ties between Trump and Russia. Now, obviously, with 2020 hindsight, it's incredibly obvious that there are immense ties between Trump and Russia. There was subsequently a five-volume Senate Intelligence Committee report under Republican leadership that documented all of these ties between Trump and Russia, not all of them, but many of them. And yet we end up with this article in the New York Times on October 31st, 2016, titled, Investigating Donald Trump, FBI Sees No Clear Link to Russia. In light of everything you've just said, and there's more, I urge people to read Craig's New Republic article, because there's a lot more. Read American Compromise, read House of Trump, read House of Putin. There is a lot more. If Craig knew all of this, the FBI surely knew all of this. So here's my question to you. And this is the part where I'm going to get a little bit saucy. What I want to ask you ultimately is about the link to that New York Times story, the origin of that New York Times story. It seems to me that right now, today, in 2023, there should be a burning internal investigation inside the New York Times about Eric Lichtblau and Stephen Lee Myers, the two reporters involved, and any editors who are sitting over their work. Look, I'm not one to call for people to be fired or lose their jobs. I don't know all the details here. And if those two people would like to come for me and say, Matt Robeson should be fired. Okay, have at it. I invite both of you onto this show right now to tell us more. Tell us why I'm wrong about this. But I think the public deserves to know, what were your sources? What internal review happened of your story? How was that headline generated? How could you have missed so much that Craig just laid out and gotten the implications so wrong? How could you have essentially been working at the behest of Russian intelligence and the Trump campaign to put out a story like that when you did? Craig, any thoughts on this? Well, I don't know exactly how they got their story. I'm sure they had sources in the FBI, and I don't have any reason to doubt that's what those FBI sources told them. I do have some insight into why the FBI started to tilt that way. And to go back, I mean, sort of to continue with my chronology going back to the 80s, when William Sessions was head of the FBI, he retired, and not long afterwards, he took as one of his major clients a man named Sim Simeon Mogilevich. And Mogilevich is one of the top 
top mobsters in the Russian mafia. He's known as the Brainy Don. He was sort of the financial genius behind the Russian mafia and is a multi-billionaire himself. And, and he was important to Putin, especially because he sort of dominated the sector that delivered liquid natural gas to Ukraine. Very important. That's, again, an example of the strategic resources there. So you had Session, who suddenly compromised, right, after leaving the FBI. He's followed by Louis Free, the former FBI director. And when Louis Free retires, he ends up representing Prevazon. And they were the Russians who, Jay Magnitsky, Rob Browder's firm, and were the, were the Putin proxies in the Magnitsky affair that has led to widespread sanctioning. So just think about it. If you were on the FBI, if you were a good-hearted FBI special agent investigating and you see, well, my last two bosses are making millions working for the guys that we're investigating. I don't know. Doesn't that affect your morale, the way you do your job? I think it does. I think it does. And I have talked to a few FBI agents about it. You also had Trump himself was hiring them. And Trump is very close friends with a guy named James Calstrom. Calstrom was a very important figure in the FBI. He just died a couple of years ago, but he was head of the New York office for many years. And way back in the 70s, he, Trump gave his favorite charity a $1.3 million donation. Well, Trump was famously parsimonious when it came to actually delivering for charities. But when the FBI was there, that was, he delivered. And according to Calstrom, they became friends and spoke roughly once a week over the next 40 years. Well, I don't know how many people you've spoken to once a week, but to me, that defines a long term. And Trump was, is not formally known as a FBI informant because to do so would mean he would be in the files. But he was known in the parlance of the Bureau as sort of a best pocket source. And that meant he would give them tips. And they do favors for him. And it was that kind of relationship. And Trump was very good at cultivating that sort of thing. And the FBI, I think, was right for it because you have a lot of people who work for 20 years. They retire in their 40s with a pension. And then they want a cushy job in security or something, work for Donald Trump for a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. I'm sorry, Paul, you're the former white collar prosecutor, not me. But Craig, are you telling me that there is a history of the KGB cultivating Donald Trump as an asset that goes back approximately as long as Donald Trump cultivating the head of the New York office of the FBI, and that those two things are intermingled and happening at, forgive my cursing here, the same fucking time? Well, in 1980, Trump was doing his first very successful project. One of the few that was a genuine success as a business venture is the Grand Hyatt Hotel right next to Grand Central Station. And like any hotel, it needed loads and loads of TVs. So where would a blue chip franchise like Hyatt go? Well, Donald Trump finds a little firm run by a Soviet emigre that is, in fact, a KGB front. And the man named Simeon Kislin, who ends up being very close to Judy Rudy Giuliani, sells him these, set, these sets. And according to one of my sources, a man named Yuri Schwetz, who was a major in the KGB back during that period, Kislin, Simeon Kislin, was what is known as a spotter agent. And a spotter agent spots assets and agents that they can recruit and cultivate. 
And that was a sort of door opening for the relationship with Donald Trump. They had a long series of interviews with Yuri Schwitz, and he went into great detail because he was working for the Soviets, recruiting American spies in Washington Station, and his colleagues in New York Station were working mostly out of the UN, and they had this befronted electronic stores of, as a front, and they began cultivating Donald Trump. At the same time that same, he is cultivating the head of the FBI and they have a rotating set of favors. This is like a Le Carre novel, man. This is, it's a, a part of the point I left out is the FBI was staking out the Joy Ludd electronics store, the electronics store in question. I know that. I talked to someone who did that. Who, I who, shopped there once. Oh, did you? Oh, Paul, don't yeah. admit that. No, I did. I did. This. I had a terrible incident there. It was the weirdest thing. It was one of the weirdest things that ever happened. I went to that electronics store. I remember the name and I went in and I was having conversations and all these guys had Russian accents. I mean, it was, they all had Russian accents. I forget what the exchange was, but I ended up getting chased out of the store by a guy who assaulted me in the street. I mean, New York cops, of course, wouldn't do anything about it. And I never went back. But it was a very weird, it was a very, it was a very weird atmosphere in there. There were like six unshaven guys with lots of gold chains standing behind counters and hardly any customers. It yeah. was a very weird place. Well, so, I'm so so but my personal story aside, we have Trump cultivated as a Russian asset since 1980. We have Russian mafia paying cash for his apartments in his signature landmark tower over the years. We have Russian money financing him when he's bankrupt, basically bankrupt over and over again. We have the heads of the former heads of the FBI going to work for various large Russian operations or oligarchs. We then come all the way up to 2016. Charles McGonigal is coming to the New York FBI office. What about other people in the FBI New York office? What well, Don't that... forget that Felix Sater, who was the managing director of Bayrock, and they were partnering with Trump, and they were located on the 24th floor of Trump Tower, and they're meeting regularly with Trump. And Felix was an FBI informant, right? So, and the money coming in from all those ventures, I mean, I traced the banks. There's a FL group, which is an Icelandic thing that is sort of a reservoir for money from the Russian mafia. And the other leaders of the Bayrock group had, I detail it in all my books, one after another was tied up with Russian intelligence in one way or another with the Russian mafia. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. And, Could and I just... don't forget also, don't forget also the other thing, Paul, that you raised a couple of minutes ago, which is there wasn't just this New York Times story giving Donald Trump this absolutely bonkers clean bill of health, which was, again, it was bullshit. Like, it, there's no way around it. It was the exact opposite of what was true. There was also the Comey announcement that he was reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. And we know from analysis done by Nate Silver at 538 that our best estimate of this is that it cost Hillary Clinton three or four points 
and cost her the election. The reason Donald Trump is president today was is that president. Omi well, was president. Became president. The reason Donald Trump became president and not Hillary Clinton was because of that moment where Comey made that announcement. And we know from Comey that he made that announcement under duress. He made that announcement because basically the other agents around McGonagall in this New York field office were essentially threatening, we're going to make this public. We're going to strategically leak this. If you don't announce it, we're going to do it. And so Comey said, well, I'd better do this. At least that way I maintain some control over it. They blackmailed him into essentially kicking the election to Donald Trump. Well, and so, again, I have to ask you, this raises the question, Craig, of all of these things are happening in this October timeframe. At the same time, McGonagall takes this new position. His FBI colleagues in New York blackmail the head of the FBI into basically destroying Hillary Clinton. And we have this mysteriously sourced New York Times story that is completely counter to decades and decades of evidence that was widely available. Guess what turns into the question for you is, what questions do you want to get to the bottom of right now when it comes to McGonagall and these other people? What would you like to know today that we don't? Right. Well, well I mean, just to answer some of the questions you raised, one, one thing I want to keep realizing is that an awful lot of what I said is, to be honest, it may or may not be illegal. And one of my favorite quotes from my colleague, Michael Kinsley, was the real scandal is what is legal. You can't get away with legal aid. So then, for example, the money laundering I was talking about, it may be technically impossible to, to prosecute Trump for that. I don't know. I'm not a prosecutor. But a lot of the, what I'm talking about here is real conflict of interest in which I think someone is heavily compromised. But And if one's made $50 million laundering money for the Russian mafia, doesn't that compromise you enough to being president? I think it should. So th that's just a huge question I've always had, and I feel that no one bothers to address. And the T New York Times in particular just sidesteps all, more often than not. I, they haven't dealt with any of this, and a lot of this is a matter of public record. Greg, you, you, what you've just said raises a question for me, and I, and I, which is that I'm a former criminal prosecutor. I prosecuted white collar guys. I did it in the age before there were computers and I collected reams of paper and went through paper and figured out how to trace everything in, in the old fashioned way with a pen and a pad. This is all, the, there is a huge difference between a criminal investigation and what happens on the counterintelligence side? Sometimes they come together and the press is always reporting criminal investigations and the whole thought is, okay, what are we doing about all charges, et cetera, et cetera. What's gone on in terms of investigating the FBI and the compromise of their counterintelligence operations and all these links and the way everything we have talked about on the show so far relates to the counterintelligence operations of the United States, because and I'm and I have in my mind, and it's like crazy time when Trump came into office. All he did was say bad things about our intelligence services, including to the Russians. And so it's all a twisted. It's all very twisted. But 
unless I'm missing something, there haven't been any investigations about all that. I mean, the way it started out, and I'd like to refresh my memory, but the FBI under Comey was doing a counterintelligence investigation of Trump immediately after the election, and Comey was fired (laughs) just after that, right? And Mueller, Robert Mueller, was appointed a special counsel, and it was supposed to carry on as a counterintelligence investigation. But somewhere along the way, he had a conversation with Rod Rosenstein, who said, no, it has to be criminal. And we didn't get a counterintelligence investigation that I can see. If anything, I I think the press comes this completely. You almost never, you always had lawyer after lawyer as a talking head analyst. But what about counterintelligence? Well, that's right. I mean, that is the question. I think you also raised in your New Republic article, the question of, What did we suddenly know when we launched the investigation a couple months later that we really didn't know in October of 2016? The answer is not a whole heck of a lot. Certainly, all of the material that you've exhaustively documented in your books was available. Certainly, the links between Manafort and Deripaska and Manafort and the Trump campaign and the Trump campaign and their many contacts with Russia, 100 that Time magazine counted. I mean, all of that was available. All of that was known. And so it does beg this question of why, what changed, right? Like, why was this suddenly, why was this suddenly something that the FBI started to launch a a counterintelligence investigation about? And why did it get shut down? Well, I mean, I don't know exactly what went on between Mueller and Rod Rosenstein, but I I mean... But I think somewhere in there is where it was shut down. And I think also Mueller was much too much hope was put in Mueller. He he was never going to really challenge the establishment at all. Or I mean, he's very much an institutionalist. If he dug down into this, I think you were going to uncover some unseemly parts of the FBI. And I don't think he wanted to do that. Let's get you out of here on this. Because, Paul, what you were just asking about leads to the FBI. What I was just asking about and what you just said, Craig, leads the FBI. We started this at the top with the FBI. And my tease for it was, this might turn into the greatest intelligence scandal in American history. And I still think that's a real possibility here because what you're essentially revealing, and my mind's still spinning about just how interwoven Trump, the KGB, Trump, the FBI were for decades and decades. What it's leading to is a level of corruption potentially within the FBI and what it led to stunning. And what it led to is Russia got to pick the American president and they did it more or less out in the open. And so right now, as we record this, we're in the midst of Jim Jordan, a totally risible figure in his own right, leading this committee that they've constituted in the U S house of representatives called something like the weaponization of the FBI against the American people or some crap like that. And to me, this is such a well-worn tactic. If you're, if you're guilty of something, it's, it's such an obvious time-honored move to accuse the other side of the exact same thing because it removes the sting of the truth, of the attack. And it's given everything you've laid out here that Jim Jordan surely knows. 
It's also gaslighting in the highest degree. It's inverting our sense of reality. And so I guess my question to you is, you've done about as much work on this as anyone in the world. Literally, you are a world-leading authority on just how deep this rabbit hole goes. And yet Jim Jordan and the Republican majority in the House is trying desperately to say that everything you've produced is backwards. And that really, the FBI was out to get Trump. That there was no obstruction and no collusion, as William Barr said. That this is all a Democrat put-up job out to get Trump. They're trying to they're trying to say that everything you've written about is bullshit. I think I know the answer to this, but how do we fight back? How do we make sure they don't get away with it and that the New York Times and the rest of the media doesn't just play stenographers for this kind of crap? Right. Well, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think you one has to fight back. And I try to do it just with my writing. But one of the really frustrating things is that the national conversation is so atomized and so fragmented. And there are all these sort of hardened ideological silent silos in the social media world. And gee, I don't think I ever penetrate the Breitbart silo or any of that world or the QAnon. And I think answering that, I think there has to be some regulation of social media that that opens those silos up in some way, but there's just not one single easy answer. Well, look, I think part of my own answer to my own question is that all we can do is what we're doing here and keep documenting and tying together the truth, the fact patterns, the incredible work that you've done over the course of years now to present all of this to us and keep repeating it. And so look, my, my challenge to the listeners and viewers is if you find this compelling and you think it's important, share it. Please make sure that go out and buy Craig's books, House of Putin, House of Trump, American Compromise. That's with a K. That's the Russian spelling because that's what they had on Donald Trump. Get the books and make this trend. Force the media to cover it because it's what people are talking about and it's what's so popular. By the way, let me just say that Blavinsky is running for president again, right? right? He certainly is. And is it not newsworthy? I'm talking to the New York Times that Donald Trump was cultivated by the KGB. Yeah, you know what I report or they should publish it. Well, I'll, here's another one for you just to build on that. And then we really will get ourselves out of here. I don't, the New York Times got rid of their public editor several years ago. And that would be, this would be the quintessential job of a public editor. We would go to the public editor and say, there should be accountability for the way you got used by Russian intelligence and the Trump campaign, as if there were a difference between those two entities. You got used and your work abused the American people and subverted the American democratic process and handed us four years of Donald Trump as president, where, by the way, there's a great CNN article, and I'll splash it up on the screen here, where they documented this 37 times as president, where Donald Trump made soft decisions on Russia, acted officially in Russia's interests and helped them. So they've gotten paid back in spades for their investment in him and their subversion of our democratic process. New York Times, there's no longer a public editor. So I don't expect you to go back and do a postmortem and have accountability for the reporters and the editors involved, but you can pay it forward. 
you can pay attention to this now because I don't know any other way to say it than to say that Donald Trump represents a clear and present danger to the future of America right now. And so if you want to absolve yourself of your 2016 sins in part, why don't you report on everything Craig Unger has been talking about right now? He should be the next guest on the daily podcast. But of course, we will have him back here as often as he likes. We're going to keep talking about this. Craig Unger, prolific and New York Times bestselling author, as if that's the seal of approval we want to be talking about. Thanks very much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.